Welcome to High Performance. This is what we've got lined up today. I think when you're trying to change a culture or you're trying to change a mindset, it's constantly reminding people about your vision, your culture and where you want to go. Um, and I think sometimes I presume that people were along the journey with me, but actually we kept a lot of things in-house. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hi there, I'm Jake Humphrey and you're listening to High Performance, the podcast that delves into the minds of some of the most successful athletes, visionaries, entrepreneurs and artists on the planet and aims to unlock the very secrets of their success. And look, you can't do a job like this on your own. So thankfully, Damien Hughes, professor, lecturer, author, super brain is alongside me. You're excited about today's chat, aren't you? Yeah, I'm very excited. I think our guest today has done something that only a rare few people do made the transition from being an elite athlete to being an elite coach. And I think there's so much that we can learn from it. Let's do it then and dive into a conversation about living a high performance life with someone who comes actually from a sporting dynasty. Her dad was a professional cricketer, her brothers, both professional international footballers. Yet it's our guest whose dedication and talent delivered one of our nation's most iconic sporting triumphs, one that broke records and absolutely moved the dial for the sport that she played and the sport that she loves. So welcome to High Performance, Tracy Neville. Thank you. Nice to have you with us. Let's start with the emotion actually of that remarkable heart-stopping comment. Commonwealth Games win for England's Roses, um, which is the greatest netball triumph our country's ever had. And it's a sport that is so often in the shadows, finally gets its moment in the sun. You were leading that team. So what, what do you look back on and reflect with hindsight that was the secret to that success? Um, having played, obviously, um, England netball and part of the system since I was 16, I think when that last shot went in um, and that goal-winning moment, I think at first it was the athlete come out in me and thought, this is a dream come true for an athlete. From someone who has been watching um, the best of the best take gold medals away repeatedly over a 20-year period um, and always been in that third and fourth playoff where we're expected to win, expected to lose. Um, from a coach's point of view, it was a different feeling. It was a relief because it had been a really tough three years leading up to that. But more importantly, it was it was part of history. Um, and I was just so enamoured to be part of a history, to be part of something that England Netball had been striving for. And over so many years and so many coaches had inputted to that, so many players, and it felt good to be in that spotlight, in that moment, um, and part of that that history of the sport and and particularly we say about taking a sport on you don't just look at a sport from that moment when we win the gold medal we looked at you know what the impact it had after and even as a governing body I don't think we expected the legacy that was left and was created that obviously created the momentum of netball moving forward. And what was your biggest bit of learning from that because as you've alluded to there we were kind of serial also runs weren't we in the netball world yeah. for years so you went about changing mindsets and changing expectations. What, what was it that you did? I, I want sort of people listening to this that aren't involved in sport 
to be able to apply the kind of thinking to the world that they're in. So what were the big learnings for you that we could all do in our own lives? Um, it's easy for me to sit here as an head coach and say that I was part of that, but there was a huge team around me who contributed to that. Um, and I remember stalking Damien at a conference one day, listening to one of his books, um, and I was actually in serious trouble at the time. And you never think as a coach that you, you almost think of the glory. You only ever see the shop window. You never see what's actually, as you open the door, the troubles and the torments that you're going to to try and move a sport on or change the mindset, what's happening in that sport. I think the first thing um, that I really wanted to do, and I remember discussing this with Damien over a cup of coffee um, in Manchester, was I wanted to try and professionalise the sport. I wanted to change the thinking of the sport because I'd sit down so many times and, and I bring back the, the knowledge of an athlete about where we used to get asked, um, obviously funding from UK Sport, um, where they tried to make professional athletes, but there was still that mindset that we were never going to get a future within netball. We, we never were going to grow up as females wanting to be sports stars because they almost said there was no future in it. You know, it, there was more future in education, in being a doctor and being a lawyer. And I think that was the mindset I really wanted to create, that actually one size doesn't fit all. And, you know, I think the real tribute to our programme now is that we have doctors, we have lawyers, but we also have international world-class athletes as well. And that's the first thing I really wanted to change, that actually as a sport and as women, you know, we, we can achieve multiple dreams, but the stage is about when you actually approach that. And I think that was absolutely crucial at the start of the programme now. As um, Damien can probably highlight, it was never a smooth road, was it? No, it wasn't. But that uh, that is something that still intrigues me to this day about what you did, because it took real courage to go and open the minds of people to achieve that objective. And that's the bit I'd be interested in you sharing. Why did you want to do that? Um, you think about a little girl who grows up looking, um, and sport was always sport in our household, it was never female or male sport, and it was only probably about the age of 14 that I started to see what a dream of being a football star looked like, or a dream of being an athlete looked like, and being able to progress in that particular field. Um, and obviously having the highlights of people like Philip, Gary and surrounded by Manchester United through that particular, what, what I saw was that actually to move a sport on, you have to be um, investing in it, you have to be passionate about it and, it and it has to take up your daily life and your daily being, that's all you need to think about. I think when you're trying to change a culture or you're trying to change a mindset, it's constantly reminding people about your vision, your culture and where you want to go. And I think sometimes I presume that people were along the journey with me, but actually we kept a lot of things in-house. Right. Um, so you were telling them what you wanted them to do, <laughs> but you weren't telling them why you wanted them to do it yeah exactly so you know the vision was I wanted to make a professional program but you know we'd heard for over what 20 years that England Netball wanted to win a gold medal but we'd never been told you know how we were going to get there where we were going to progress to what our targets were within it and I think um, that was probably one of the biggest learnings and I remember when we decided to turn into professional program and there were probably three people involved in this there was me my performance director and my CEO and we basically just sent out contracts to the athletes and expected them to sign it. And that's not how it works. You know, nobody puts a signature on a piece of paper unless they know what they're signing up for. What we started to do is we, we learned a huge lesson then because when we started the programme on June the 7th, this day, we walked in, we, we'd sent out something like 20 professional contracts and only six people walked in on the first day of the training. But what 
I learned over that particular time was that as long as I had the support of the people around me, that was the board, the organisation, I knew then I had the confidence to progress things forward. And it sounds really easy, but it was probably one of the most difficult times of my career. And what I started to do is I started to become a people person. So I started to change as a coach rather than being that more dictatorial role of telling people what to do, which was at amateur level expected. At amateur level, people just turn up, do it, go home, do the jobs. At professional level, people want to know why they're doing it, why they're investing in it and, you know, what they're giving up. We constantly kept ringing these athletes. So every single day we were in contact with the athletes on an individual basis, telling them, you know, where we wanted the programme to go, what their role would be involved in the programme, how we wanted to continue forward. And that started to progress and started, and the messaging started to get around people. There were other... There are other people, and I call them influencers, um, and they're absolutely key. And sometimes that doesn't come from the athletes, it comes from the people around you. So Helen Alfano was really, had a real personal, close relationship with some of the athletes. So when she was having one-on-one time with them, she was actually speaking to them about that. The other person that I involved was a, a lady called Wai Tamaru, who is very well respected in world netball. I brought her over to England. She's from New Zealand. She looked at the programme, but she also had massive influence on some of the big names out in Australia and New Zealand. And then the third person that I had was Tanya Obst, who was a good friend from mine 20 years ago, who, was the, who at that time was the Australian under-21 coach. And she was assistant coach at um, a club called The Giants out in Australia. And she basically was linked to two of our key athletes, our world-class athletes. And it was the trust to get messages out about the programme and about how crucial it was in the journey to being world number one and gold medalist and I think that was absolutely key and along that journey then we were able to invest in Damien for a short period of time because he's so expensive <laughs> <laughs> just half an hour and he's got about 30 <laughs> jobs going on at once but I think I don't know what from your point of view Damien were the highlights for you when you come into our program I love seeing your transition as a coach I think that that journey that you describe of um, coming in and initially from what you'd experienced yourself as a player to actually understanding it was the people. They were people first and players second. And the fact that you made that transition so well is a testament to you, I think. Like, what would you say was the biggest transition you made? Um, I think the hugest one um, from a coaching point of view was I started to invest in the people and where we were going. The other, the other thing is that when you become a leader, you you become set aside from everybody else. So what you start to do is your mannerisms, the way you present yourself becomes a little bit different. So you become a little bit unapproachable. You become a little bit of a hierarchy. People think that they they can't be honest or trust in you. And I think one of the key things I said to Damien when he actually came into our program was it's really hard for us to really get an assessment of where we are together as a team. I've seen some really poor um, support from psychologists and I've seen some real excellent stuff. And I think the poor stuff I've seen is when they come in and they start to target individuals. I think that for me was never on my radar. I wanted What I wanted them to do is come in, look at the team and then move down to what them individuals could do to be part of the values and behaviours of the team. And we wanted to develop self-confidence, we wanted to develop belief that we could win. And and winning isn't about, people just think you just win all the time. That's that's just impossible within sport. You, you cannot be successful every single game you go out. Um, and it was, a, it was crucial for me that if we lost, we could win again. 
we weren't happy to lose but we could come back and win and you know we were happy to lose lose win we were happy to win 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 and continue yeah. that on is winning the only way to develop a winning mindset I don't think so. I think because you learn a lot of things from losing. And if I look at the mindset of where we started to move as a team, at first it was about winning as a group so and about celebrating success. So I think we're a culture or a nation, particularly women. You never want to celebrate the good things that you've done and you're quite embarrassed to be able to do that. And we had quite, um, in our programme, we had a, a lot of hierarchy. So I probably was one of them at one particular time in the programme where when youngsters come in, there's an expectation that that youngster is not as valuable as that um, senior player or they have to do the time on the bench. You know, I hear this a lot. Um, you have to wait for your chance. You have to do that. For me, there's no waiting because at some point someone is going to succeed or flourish. And for us, it was about succession planning. So it was about trying to understand the value of every single member of our team. And the way we started to do that was... Um, in meetings, first of all, the first meeting we started to um, congress towards was, why are we here? Um, because I've been in a room where there's people who've wanted to win a medal and there's people who are just there for the money. We sat in this room as staff, players, and we were really honest about why we were doing, why we were here, why we were doing netball, where we wanted to go, blah, blah, blah. And it wasn't just saying about winning a gold medal. You know, I say this... If we had the ball in the dying seconds of this match to win a gold medal, would we would we be a team that people would perceive we'd get that shot mm. in? Um, are we the best attacking team in the country, uh, in the world? Is that what costs to be world-class? People say, you've got to be fitter, you've got to be faster. Are we perceived as the best attacking team in the world? Because that's what we deem as world-class. And I remember the girls saying, no, we're not. And I said, well... How can we, what can we do within ourselves to make us the best attacking team? Because at the end of the day, we have 50% possession, so we have to be the best attacking team to win a gold medal. And we started to change things. So that started to become on and off the court. So if we want to be the best attacking team, we've got to have the best shooters. We've got to have the best feeders. We've got to have the best conversion to goal. So they started to come up with what they needed to be best. We've got to be fit because in the dying seconds of a game, we've got to be able to last this game out. You know, our contribution training, we've got to practice our trade. You know, a lot of the time is, um, I've seen it quite a lot from coaches that um, the perception of players is, you know, if they're fit, that means that they can come and play a tournament will know it's that consistency of performance are they playing for their club teams day in week in week out are they training with their club teams because players that are not doing that are going to be no good to you at a world cup because it's the robustness it's the clarity of that so it started to be go around you know what do we perceive as a world-class team and not looking at australia new zealand it's do they perceive us like that at the moment it believes that we're going to lose you know, so, you know, what's the perception of that? And then we start, so we started you, to... When you first arrived, was that what it was like? In, <laughs> did you feel like in the dying moments of a game, with your first couple of months in charge of England netball, the, the, the perception is that oh, they'll lose this? Yeah, it was worse than that. I think the perception, I remember going out in a game and I knew as soon as we'd made three mistakes, we were going to lose this game by 20 to 30 goals oh against the world's goodness. best. This is when I was a coach. Right. As a player, I've been in a changing where a coach has gone... We need, we need to win today to sustain funding. That was our incentive. For me, that was never an incentive. You know, everything, it was a noose round your neck. It was a very fixed mindset. We're working towards that next four years to win a gold medal. For me, it was, I'm always going to be in netball. So it was, let's work to World Cup and beyond. So how are we going to develop the next stage of girls? Well, that is means that we don't always have our world-class players in the programme. 
we work on our pathway we give them opportunities you know sometimes you have to lose a few to win a few um so it's just making sure that we're continuing the success and i think two of the things that we did in the program was one of them was um we started to celebrate success and that doesn't mean on the court because a lot of it um, is not done on the court it was when they come to a team meeting and um, we really started to applaud anything well that had been done that week and it could have been down to percentage body fat who won the sprints um, to having a baby you know and it was everybody was part of that celebration of success the second thing we started to do is we started to bring in little games like just fun games that different people excelled at so it was a creative task it was a, a mind task so you had one girl in our program who was probably one of the rookies of the team who our older person was going I want her on my team so it, it become a little bit so they started to recognize the value the valuable of it because you're always going to get your fit people in your team and you're always going to get those who struggle to do it and I think just putting it on the court I think you create can create an hierarchy the next thing the last thing we did um, in the World Cup we started to do a game, it was five minutes, a game each day of we're in it to win it. It was just a five minute game, you had five minutes to complete it, it was anything. It was either go and get something to do with the Beatles within five minutes and you had to post it on um, Instagram, it was um, a quiz, it was um, basically had five minutes to complete it. Now, winning was important, however, if they didn't win, what they did is they debriefed and come back to win the game the next day and the game was completely different like an opposition. So it really created the mindset and although we didn't win a gold medal at that World Cup. I think every single day I never woke up, even on that um, playoff game, I would have woke up nervous, unsure, are we going to win? We'd never beat South Africa twice, but I never woke up that day feeling that. What I felt is we debriefed it. We were obviously gutted from losing against New Zealand, um, but we woke up and we wanted to win again. And that for me was absolutely huge throughout that. And you, you think about how you want to leave a programme, and I thought... You know, if you want to leave, that's the time to leave. Right, yeah. <laughs> Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So how important would you say self-awareness is for a high-performance life then, Trace? How often would you engage in that kind of re-evaluation? So obviously, Damien, when you moved on, <laughs> um, um, we obviously brought in someone at, like another company to support us. I knew that my personality is really can be really difficult to work with, but can be really easy to work with, and that depends. Explain on that. How do you mean? <laughs> quite high maintenance, quite right. demanding. Um, of yourself or of everyone else? Both. 
I have a quite high expectations of myself and I have high expectations of particular staff members and bearing in mind, you know, some of, we're in an organisation that you cannot always have the best of the best. Yeah. However, what you're trying to do is bring everyone up to a level that you're constantly working with the best of the best. What are you like if you give someone one, two, three opportunities to get to the level that you need them to get to? Um, and they're still not I am Because there are victims in, these, in this sort of situation yeah. where you're moving a programme on. Some people don't come along. Yeah, I'm not going to lie. You know, there has been some casualties um, through that particular program. However, I think the biggest thing for me is my frustration and um, that one people don't think or move as fast as me. I think that's one of the pluses of me being the head coach of England. I'm, I'm a decision maker and we move forward with that particular decision. The other thing which can create quite a tense environment, particularly if you get me in points where haven't got that sensitive side you know I'm not sat around a dinner table with you I'm at a Commonwealth Games or a competition where my answers become very blunt very to the point I think that can create a lot of distress within a particular staff group so what I started to do is I started to work with someone on my self-awareness so he basically assessed me in sessions assessed the staff around me we started to try and understand how we are and how we work and you know, so I'll give you a clear example. Um, I had a particular staff member who relied on me giving her confidence by um, saying thank you or that constant conversation or that constant speaking or she wanted to be near me. And that can be quite frustrating in a performance environment when you're living together. And he, he basically advised me that some of these staff want time with you. They want an opportunity to be able to put their thoughts forward. So what he said is he, he, he said about creating time for people. So he said, you know, what you can then say is instead of getting frustrated yourself or um, creating anxiety in another staff member, you can put meetings within your programme. So you can revert them to that particular meeting. So, for example, I could say we have a staff meeting or a coaches meeting um, or a medical meeting in today. Could you bring that to the medical meetings? That's a really good point. And then I could end that conversation straight away. So that really helped me manage my time. I think the other thing was that I lost a little bit of my personality. What you start to do is you start to come in as a hierarchy. You know, you go in, I'm delivering, I'm going. And for me as an athlete, I was always, I was never one of the best athletes, but I was always a little bit like the cement. You know, the team enjoyed me. I made people laugh. My personality was bubbly. And I lost a little bit of that. And Basically, when that was pointed out to me, I made sure that when I went into them environments that I employed people around me that could bring out that little bit of a... And you hadn't noticed that? No. Interesting. Um, I hadn't noticed it, and I think it's because I was in this world of just on an escalator going. I have been in a changing room where I've probably created more anxiety by my body language or my speech that's going forward. So it actually enabled me to laugh at myself and players to obviously joke with me as well because I think... There's a seriousness within an environment, but but there has to be a lot of fun and enjoyment, and that is something that our girls really worked on. So there was a lot about myself that I particularly learned. I'm not going to say. Um, some of it I, I still need. It's good self-reflection. <laughs> I think it's more of other people's reflection. <laughs> well, you've listened to it. That's yeah, the main exactly. One of the key themes that has come out in your answer there, Trace, has been very much around the sense of kindness and and a bit of humanity and treating people with respect and discretion how important is that in high performing cultures it's huge and you, 
you know, I think sometimes when you get one of these head coaches role, you you forget how you've been brought up. And I come in six weeks before World Cup. One of my good friends had been removed from the role, so there was a lot of anxiety within that. And instantly you're on the back foot trying to prove yourself or trying to win an environment over and you've got a very short period to do it in a very pressured environment and I remember going through this particular program that it got to a point where you were always constantly making the decisions so you almost become the bad person or you almost become the person that people don't like or you know you've got the careers in the hand and what I started to do then is I started to bring in quite key members of um, an athlete group key members of staff where you know, these decisions were not always made about from me and that I was able to speak these decisions out. Although I had an opinion in my mind, it felt that if I spoke them out to these people, I then got another side to the story. I got another outlook from different areas and it enabled me then to make an informed decision on that particular scenario. And what it did is it then, within the group, it felt that every decision I made, whether I changed the captain, whether I... Um, did a selection decision, whether I made a decision on a pati the particular programme, it felt that every single person supported me within it. Did it always have to be your decision though, ultimately? Yeah, 100%. I've been in an environment where there's been 12 people around at a table, everyone's got an opinion, and then you come away with no decision made. And I think one thing I'm really clear on is I'm, I'm willing to listen. It doesn't mean to say I have to agree with you, but a decision has to be made ultimately, and that that is one thing I was really strong of within our programme, was that the decision that was made around the table was the decision that everyone had to walk out the room and support. You see it in the past where you see bad cultures or bad environments, and I've, I've been in one of them while I've been in the England programme where particular staff members have been putting into athletes about they didn't agree with particular decisions, then you start to create a little bit of like friction through your group and you feel like no one's buying into stuff. So now I'm really clear. The other thing is about transparency. And I feel that within the Roses, a lot of management feel that by not telling people information protects them. Um, and I've learned in the environment, actually, by telling them the information, they feel well-armed to go into battle or go into war. What about people that are brilliant athletes uh, or in any other walk of life are brilliant at their job, but they are also not the kind of people that, that can take that brutal honesty? I've had a lot of wars through this particular job. You know, a lot of athletes who have not liked the values and behaviours of the programme. You're in an environment where I think real central values and behaviours are really important. And you feel that, you know, there could be a world-class athlete who doesn't agree with my decision. However, they conform with the decisions of the other 11 teammates that they have. And that was absolutely important. So if I take an example, we had a world-class player once who was making a real poor decision in respect to coming into a competition. And basically for me, my decision was that she had to come into this competition. And then it becomes a real personal thing between me and the athlete. So what I did is I took it to the leadership group and said, what are the values of this team? What are the behaviours? What is your expectation of this particular player? And what you did is you got an, a view then of what they thought of that particular player. And, and then they made a decision on it. And they, they basically said, you know, that is not a decision that conforms with the team. And what, what happens is then you can then be supported. What you're describing there is, was, is textbook about you removing ambiguity from the culture so everyone knows where they stand yeah. and what's expected. What would you say were the trademark behaviours of a high-performing culture that you developed in you know, um, with the Roses? What we started to do, and we started it with you, Damien, we, we come up with, I think the team come up with three words that they wanted. 
that was the initial stages. We started to develop our own words within that. And one of the important things within that was they wanted fun. They wanted to have fun together. So we had to make changes within the programme. We had to make things where they felt that they were doing that throughout. And that could have been a five-minute fun together or it could have been a whole day fun together they were able to believe in that so we used to have the captain um, or a leadership member of the team at every staff meeting actually speaking some of them behaviors out so they acted them out they showed examples of where people had done it and um, they started to measure each other on them examples and I think one of the things that it's like rules of netball you know um, if I'm taking a ball down the court and I do I step three times I've done footwork it's a clear rule within the within in the sport that you know you're going to get penalised for. Likewise, within our um, player group, what they started to do is, you know, if people were, you know, bringing the group down, not having fun, not joining in, they could actually say something to that person because that was one of their behaviours. Right. And that was absolutely crucial within our environment because it's hard to say to someone you're being miserable, you're really bringing the negativity down of the group. It's really hard to do that. So what, what it used to do, it used to be a team thing. Like, you know, one of our things is fun together. So you have to, you have to make it an effort here, even if you're having a bad day. Do you personally have to be careful about being constantly intense? Because... If you are constantly intense, it no longer has an impact. They go, oh, there's Tracy being intense again. And you almost have to get your own balance right so that people know when you are deadly serious and you are having a conversation that you really want them to listen to and maybe when you're just trying to improve the mood of the group, you know, working at different levels personally, which maybe, I don't know, I sense it might be tricky for you because you are, you're either 100% or you're not, you know? Yeah. Is that um, fair? Yeah, totally fair. It's hard as a head coach not to work at 100%, but that is where these values and behaviours come in because you start to understand what you like when you're under pressure. When, And one of my things was I needed space to see my family or to go to the gym. So if someone turned around to me and said, Tracy, you need to go to the gym, I knew probably I was being... <laughs> <laughs> time to go to the gym yeah. and you know it, it becomes and then you start laughing and it starts to bring you down it starts to bring a little bit of humour out That so you know there, there were words that we had that we could say to each other that actually created a little bit of laughter the other thing that I found that was really really important around that was learning something personal about everyone within my team because there's nothing worse that if I've gone into a conflicted situation with Damien or with yourself to then had to then go and have dinner with this person mm. and we couldn't have that carrying on so it enabled me as a person to be able to sit down with that person and talk about their kids their hobbies and their life and so it enabled me to take myself away from that real leadership hierarchy role and put myself into more of a personal role so I could change my persona within the environment. I wasn't perfect, I'm not going to say that, um, but it enabled me to create friendship as well as being able to be a leader to that and I think that's one of the most difficult things to do as a leader. What would you reflect on as the biggest mistakes that you made? Probably my... Maybe even the single biggest, the biggest learning. The biggest learning was, um, I remember the first conference I saw Damien when um, obviously I started to stalk him <laughs> um, because I, he, you know, he had some huge points that probably there was the mistakes was, he, I remember him saying something significantly like um, a teacher walking into a classroom, um, you have five minutes to take the room um, and gain the confidence because it will probably then, if you don't, he then takes you something like three months, was it Damien, yeah, yeah. to get that, that, um, right? yeah, to yeah, get that class back. That actually stuck in my head because the way I went in 
six weeks prior to that World Cup. Um, I went in as a bit of a dictator. I wasn't really integrating anyone in the decision-making. It was made, um, this is the way it was going, you know, the high road, so on and so on. And it probably took me a year and a half to get my programme back. Um, and that that took a lot of work, hard work, a lot of effort. Um, would I do the same again? I'm unsure because when you're asked, you know, demanded to work under them intense conditions, you're unsure how you would approach that again because it's very hard to get people on board when there's still a lot of grief and um, dissatisfaction about how someone else exited who was a good friend of them particular people. So I think that was probably one of the hugest mistakes I made because it took me a long, long time to be able to get the trust and the respect and confidence back of that team. One of my big things is I, is I really want people to understand that there are no secrets, right, to living a high-performance life. Anyone can do it, I believe. Do you believe the same? Do you believe that anyone can be coached or created to live a high-performance life, regardless of the setting or not? No. Really? I think it, a lot of it is natural. I think it, a lot of it is... I think we're developed as people to have a role in life, and that, that role in life... Um, is I don't think suited to everyone. So if I think about um, the head coach or a senior coach member that, you know, you become, you know, you have to be willing to be um, very isolated um, to become, you know, a decision maker, to become someone who is happy to face conflict, who's happy to deal with conflict, who's happy to take something forward, to have disagreements, um, who's happy to go through a real difficult point and be able to pick themselves up from that and if I think about you know the people who are who I'm associated with if I think about my friends or you know some of the the people around me I, I think they wouldn't be able to do that because there's a lot of people in this world who want to be liked who are happy to go along you know and be a sheep and just follow um, and they don't want that particular conflict they avoid conflict all the time and I think there's a comp completely different mindset however when you put a team together, you can't have seven of me because that makes it very difficult. So if I think about the team, you know, people were now to assess the, the, the staff members that I actually put together. I have them particular people who, you know, want, are happy to go along the decision, are happy to support that, who will work with you, who just want um, the candles and the easy life. However, and, and there's other people who bring out the fun, you know, and, and the characters within my team are so different. And I think sometimes you can make a mistake about when you put a team together um, that actually it, it's not the best team. And I think that sometimes is really important. So then people have the, the themes in life, but to be an absolute out and out leader, I think you need to have a certain character and a persona about you. I think you're right. I think when you talk about it from a cultural point of view, not everybody can be the leader. No. Somebody's got to set the standards. Yeah, I think that everyone can improve their mindset. I, th I have a real issue with the victim mentality. Yeah, right? and you know there are things that have happened to all of us in our lives that we're not responsible for. You know, if your wife or husband leaves you, that's not your responsibility necessarily, but it's your res but it's not your fault, but it's your responsibility to deal with it. Or if you're bullied at school, it's not your fault but it's still your responsibility to deal with it. If you have an injury and your career gets cut short, it's not your fault, but it's still your responsibility. Do you know what I mean? That's one of my real sort of I think, big I think things. If I think about leadership, I think about the question that you asked as well um, in respect to that. 
I think one thing I learned through the roses is you can create leaders under leaders. And I think one of the mistakes that we make is we don't progress the leader with where the program's going. So if I think about my particular program, I had four captains through that five-year cycle I was in post. Now, for someone, that would look like I'm, I'm not a decision maker or um, I'm constantly changing my decision. I had to move the program forward and it was which particular leader was able to progress that program. So that could have been the off-court one. So I had a great off-court captain, although she wasn't maybe a key starting seven player or, you know, someone was, you know, she wasn't on the court all the time. What she did is she progressed my program off the court. What we started to move into then, as we started to come into the World Cup, we needed, you know, a leader took over who was progressing our program on the court and that was absolutely essential because we were without 40% of our key players in our training camp leading into the World Cup we were going to get them late we needed someone to really battle these players out on the court through this particular centralised programme so I think one of the major mistakes is it's an expectation that you make that person captain but actually what you need is you need to choose a leader that's absolutely essential to be able to move your programme forward so that can change yeah through that it's almost like your job gets harder the more successful you are you're having to make bigger decisions yep. disappoint uh, people yeah, more yeah. Always. and you've got to be a lot more adaptable um, and, but you have to create that situation I think sometimes like a leader just sporadically you know I've made a mistake where I've just suddenly made a leader a leader and then I've realised it's actually been the complete wrong decision so what I made sure is within our programme that you know through the competitions that we had a different leader went to them different competitions into different environments so people were used to other people delivering around that and around the particular program and that was absolutely key i even sent different coaches now one of the things you do as a coach is you feel threatened and um, that you don't want someone to be better than you or but for me for having someone better than me was absolutely essential because that then made me a brave better person yeah, brave. it's very brave in my particular role but you know i sent people to senior competitions to represent the roses as a head coach so one of my assistant coaches went and won a gold medal at the fast five um out in australia that in my Mine was a reflection of the program and not a reflection of me. And that, that was something that I I am quite an holistic person. I don't feel undermined, you know, I don't feel undermined by that. I feel that's it's a team decision to be able to do that. Um, and that's what's really crucial for me. Brilliant. So we've got to finish off, Trace, we've got some quick fire questions. So <laughs> these the are the worst one, ones. No, yeah, <laughs> you'll enjoy these. The first okay. one. What are the three non-negotiable behaviours that you and the people around you must buy into? Not being late. That's one of my bugbears. Um, training to compete. Um, and the last one is respect. What advice would you give to a teenage Tracy just starting out? Um, if I was to be a teenage Tracy again, um, I think what I would say is that um, I think there were aspects within my life that I didn't enjoy. I think I was very reliant on people to assist me going forward so I think from now on I think I would make myself a little bit more independent um, and ensure that it was actually something that I really wanted to do I think you manage that don't you <laughs> definitely <laughs> so how did you react to your greatest failure the way I react to failure is probably um, a, a long time thinking on my own I'm a very thinking person I like to have space I don't like to have people around me I don't like a lot of noise so for me, it's about trying to make that situation better. 
Um, and a lot of people think when you fail, you should apologise. But a lot of it is, it's about learning from that particular failure. So the key thing for me would be, what were the positives of that failure? What were the negatives? How could I take that on? How can I correct it? But not in a apologetic way, more of a strategic way of, you know, working with people to make that situation better rather than just becoming a well, you know, wallowing in myself. How important is legacy to you? Hugely. I think one of the things I first said, which the girls probably didn't buy into when I come into the programme is, we have never won a gold medal. However, we will do everything in our power to try and win one. And this is not just about a medal round our neck or it being gold. It's also about what we create within it, how people perceive us, what threat we perceive, um, how we can bring the programme on, how we can make each individual person better. And I think that was hugely important. And the last question, what's your one golden rule to live a high-performance life? Taking time out. I think if I look back on the particular programme and um, is that I very rarely went on holiday without thinking. Um, I very rarely enjoyed um, the external environment that I lived in. And I think that was hugely important now um, and you talk about high performance coaches about taking time out and I look now that I am taking the time out and I genuinely did really need that because of the intenseness that I put into the program going in so I can really thoroughly understand why people do take a sabbatical from that environment because it's a very hard environment to live in. It's a strong answer that. Thank you so much. Absolutely fascinating. Brilliant. You've done all that while continuing to grow a baby in your stomach. Quite a remarkable performance. <laughs> How are you feeling? Um, Bit tired now. Oh, uh, yeah. Um, yeah. No one, no one told me that. I, I actually think it's a four-year cycle. And everyone, <laughs> do you know what the lie I hate about pregnancy is people try and tell you it's nine months when it's actually ten. <laughs> so, you know, that for me is a big lie until you actually get pregnant. Um, and then you realise 40 weeks is not nine months. Um. <laughs> well, we've got some news for you. It lasts about 18 years. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you, Chase. <laughs> Damien. Jake. I think in life you get people who are too fearful and aren't confident enough to surround themselves with brilliance, right? Tracy's the exact opposite, isn't she? Yeah, I think, as we mentioned uh, in the podcast, I was lucky enough to to get to work with Tracy for a while. And uh, what always struck me about her was her curiosity, the fact that there was things that she knew she didn't know, but had the humility and the courage to go and ask the question and admit she didn't know rather than brazen it out. Love that, because there's the old phrase, you don't know what you don't know. Yeah. And yet she clearly understands that and makes sure that she brings people. But it's not just bringing people in around her, it's bringing the very best people. And that, that does take an incredible amount of self-belief because, you know, there's a little voice at the back of your head that says, oh, don't get undermined. You don't let them become the leader. You have to really believe in yourself. Yeah, and, and I think that's a big message for anyone listening to this to take away from Tracy, that that, that sort of copper-bottomed self-confidence isn't something she was born with, it's something that she's had to have the courage to take a chance, and that trust that she's shown has been, has been paid back in bucket loads. Interesting listen. Yeah, very much. Our huge thanks to Tracy Never. Wasn't she interesting? Listen, if you've enjoyed the episode, please subscribe. Please leave a review. We're so grateful if you do either of those. I'm also grateful to Tom Griffin from Rethink Audio. And do keep an eye across our socials for details of the next episode and the next great guest. See ya. See ya.